This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Ethan, and today is Saturday, August the 5th, 2023. I'm recording the message that I'm going to give at our Beaver Creek congregation on Sunday the 6th. And I have to tell you, today is a stunningly beautiful day in the Colorado mountains. If you're thinking about coming out and visiting us, you weren't quite sure, you need to come. We'd love to see you. My friends, today we are starting part two of our journey through Proverbs. Now, part one was an introduction and we covered some really essential ground. So if you missed any of that, I encourage you to go back and check it out. As always, all the everything is on the Beaver Creek tab of our church website, trinityvale.com, my audio recordings, and the printout of my notes, other stuff. Anyway, friends, what we saw, all right, if I just distilled those three messages down to, a, to, to just a statement, we saw how the primary purpose of Proverbs is to call Israel, was to call Israel rather, and by extension now, all believers, all people, to a living trust in the Lord. And not just God generically. When we say the Lord, right, this isn't just some generic general revelation idea of God, but the Lord, Yahweh, the I Am, the God of Israel, who, even as the Proverbs themselves were being written, was, as Paul proclaims in Colossians, the Lord was working toward the reconciliation of all things in Christ. Right? This is what the Proverbs is. You've heard me say it if you've tracked with me over the years, the, the, the Old Testament, the Proverbs is a beautiful illustration of this, are like a giant red flashing arrow pointing to Jesus, pointing to the New Testament, what God would accomplish in his grace through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, friends, the means of calling us to the Lord that we see in Proverbs is the great theme of Proverbs, which is the calling the gift of wisdom. Now, last week we talked about how wisdom in Proverbs is often personified as a woman, as woman wisdom. But that said, that's not what happens here right out of the box in Proverbs chapter 1. For having given his introduction to the purpose of the Proverbs, Solomon now immediately moves into his first lesson. In this first section of Proverbs, rather than write the the, the pithy little um, statements, these parallel poetic statements that Proverbs is most famous for. In this first part of Proverbs, we have a series of lectures, and these lectures are set up in the form of a father to his son, or in this case, significantly, of loving parents, the mother and the father, both firmly speaking to their child, warning against the devastating consequences of abandoning wisdom and embracing folly. And so we start our journey into the text, verses 1 through 7, we really covered in the introduction, now beginning in Proverbs 1, chapter 8, with the gift of a parent's wisdom. And we read, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching, for they are a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. You know, the word listen here is the same Hebrew word of the famous Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And this is an emphatic call to hear, to consider, to 
to apply truth, the truth of the Lord, into life. Notably, as I mentioned, this instruction is not just from the father. It is from the father and the mother. And the garland or wreath, right, or chain or necklace were both symbols of prestige, victory in life, and dedication. You see, the message here is emphatic. The parents are saying, my child, hear and take heed to what we say. For if you do, it will bring goodness, success, and you will prevail in life. Now, real quick, parenthetically, you need to go back and listen to the first message <laughs> as, a, as a lens through which we see these, right, these if-then statements in Proverbs. But anyway, going on. Friends, that opening statement there, verses 8 and 9, this is the parent's invitation into what is good, right? Do not forsake our teaching. It is good for you. It is wisdom. It's the invitation into what is good. It's powerful, it's brief, and it's to the point. But they don't stop there. In much greater length, they now turn to this powerful warning against just against the core temptation of life. Picking up in verse 10, they say, the parents say, my son, right? and every time you hear me read my son, I want you to think my child, my son, my daughter, right? both. The wisdom of God is not exclusive to the male. We covered that in our introduction as well. My son, if sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let's lie in wait for innocent blood. Let's ambush some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole, like those who go down to the pit. We will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Come cast lots with us, and we will all share the loot. Friends, the language here is strong and it's explicit. You can just imagine the scene. Parents sitting down with their young, energetic, headstrong son, seeing the opportunities and temptations of his life laid out in front of him and taking his hand and pleading, listen to what we have to say. There are things that you are about to face that may allure you, but their ways lead to death. And you know, the nature of this language makes it easy for us to think, well, these words are just, they're for a headstrong young man or a headstrong youth. But my friends, we need to zoom out just a bit and consider the wisdom and the caution here for us. Because what we see here is a core strategy of the enemy and the core weakness of what the New Testament calls our flesh. When we are living out of our own wisdom, not looking to God, this is where temptation will strike. And the first warning is against being enticed, right? The temptation to be enticed. My son, if sinful men entice you, don't give in to them. You know, this idea of being enticed or alluring it's just the simple truth that sin seems attractive. But there's so much that is counter to the nature of God that, is, that seems really, really good, or it seems really sexy. And friends, this is core to the concept of temptation itself. Now, if I make this compromise, if I do this thing, then I'll get what I really want. You know, this was the serpent's temptation to even Adam. The fruit of the tree was pleasing to the eye. It really looked good. 
And friends, this divine warning cuts across all of life. There are things that seem good, pleasing, easy to justify, but they actually come at a high cost. The cost of violating our conscience before God. The cost of subverting our hearts. So the question here is, what is your vulnerability to be enticed? How is it that temptation is seeking to seduce you? And maybe it's no huge thing, right? You may be a spiritually, emotionally healthy person and praise God for that. But for all of us, right, the enemy, there's a teacher that I listened to one time, and he just made a great point. Is He says that Satan looks out for our weak places. Satan's not going to attack me the same places that he's going to attack you, right? What is your vulnerability? What is the weakness of your flesh? Because it's always there in places, again, of weakness. When we take our eyes like Peter off of Christ, what are your wind and waves? And with this initial plea, the parents now describe to their child a core attribute, my friends, of virtually all sin. In fact, it's really, if you think about it, the attribute that makes sin, sin. And it is the temptation to devalue another person. Starting in verse 11. And if they, the gang, right? There's this this image of this gang tempting the headstrong young man. And if they say, come along with us, let's lie in wait for innocent blood. Let's ambush some harmless soul, swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. Friends, there's so much to talk about here. But just consider, if we ever are wondering, right, is this thought I've got going on, this thing I'm considering, these actions or these words, this choice, Are these in violation of the character and the nature of God? The simplest and most powerful question that we can ask is how would that thought, how would that action or choice impact another person? And even if the other person isn't aware of it, does this damage the value of another human being? Again, even if it's in my own mind. Because, guys, we probably, probably nobody listening to this is thinking, you know what? I'm going to in, lie in ambush to kill someone. I'm lying in wait for innocent blood, right? The explicit, strong language that we see here. But the principle is the same, and it cuts across the totality of life. You see, in this passage, the temptation of the gang is to self-gratification at the complete and extreme expense of another person. But for us... How are we tempted to gratify ourselves, right, or some part of ourselves at the expense or damage or devaluing of another person? You know, it's so easy and subtle that we often don't even consider it unless we're really being self-aware and purposeful, seeking to always look at other people through the lens of Christ. We think about our countenance, our social media activity. Right, how we talk to and how we talk about people with which we disagree. Right? How do we talk about people to other people? How do we talk over people in conversation? How often are we really self-aware about if we're just talking over people or really listening? That's a great example. Our financial integrity, right? how, we, how we treat our environment. There's so many examples that we should give. You know, and I... I I've hesitated to give this one, but I, I, I just have to. 
um, dur- during the week, I was with a, a group of people of believers, right? It was, it was a Bible study. And a person there, a leader in the group, had on a t-shirt that says, I liked America better when I was young. And I, and I, I just, it struck me aside and I thought about it as, as I went home a few hours later and I thought, well, you know, you, you probably do. Right? And that, that's, that's a political statement. It probably makes you feel good to put that out there. But if you wear that shirt around town, what does that statement say to other people, right? What would the statement, America was way, way better back in the 1950s and 60s. What would that say to an, Amer- to an African-American person who grew up, right, in far, under far greater racism and persecution than is present now, and in some cases still significantly present now, but nothing like it was, right, when I was a kid? Right? What about a single mom doing her best to raise kids? Right? And the judgment, the condemnation that was automatically put on the woman at that time. Again, I could go on and give many, many, many examples. And the person wearing this t-shirt is a good person, a friend of mine, right? a generous person. But friends, and I do this as well, so often, you know, we, we speak, again, our countenance, we don't even think about how, what we say and how we say it, what we communicate to the world around us, how does this impact people? Are we building bridges or are we building walls? You know, it's been said very truly that the temptation to elevate oneself above another person is at the root of every war, every conflict, and the totality of human suffering at the hands of other people. And so the parents plead with their child, my child, don't do it. Consider the cost. And now the parents cut to the chase, revealing the source of enticement, right? Temptation that walks hand in hand with the temptation to elevate ourselves above other people. And this is the temptation of easy gain. This this passage, in, in essence, is a warning against easy money, right? The enticement is you don't have to go through the pain and hassle of honest work. There's a shortcut to get what you want, and we'll show you what it is. Again, the dehumanizing truth is that to accomplish that easy gain, it will be at the expense of another person. And the shortcut to gratification, this also cuts across all of life, and it will be a major theme as we continue. But one more thought in this initial warning. Friends, and it's just the reality that temptation lies. You know, the voice of the gang offers companionship. They say, let's do this. Come along with us. And this is what temptation so often does. It offers a sense of belonging. It caters to our hunger for acceptance by pressuring us to set aside what we know is right. But the great lie here is that while we will harm others to get what we want, that that then we will turn around. That Let me restate that. The lie here that the gang gives is that while people will harm others to get what they want, that then they'll turn around and be honest with each other. In verse 14, they say, they say, they say cast lots with us, and we will all share the loot. Well, no, they won't. Friends, if we choose as friends those who will harm others, you know, another example, gossip about others, devalue others, what makes us think that those people won't harm us as well? 
And if we distill that further down, my friend, it's the lie that we can set aside integrity and sacrifice character in one part of who we are without it impacting the rest of our life. We may say, yes, I acknowledge to myself that this thing I'm doing is wrong and unhealthy, but I, I can compartmentalize it and I'll just be fine everywhere else. You see, the lie of the enemy is, follow me and I'll give you what you want, right? And all the rest of you will be fine. Friends, when the intent of the enemy is always to corrupt all of who we are, at this point, boy, there's so much more we could talk about there, and we will in the coming weeks. As this warning in this passage, we will hear this reiterated in different ways as we go through Proverbs. But at this point, the father gives a rebuttal to the enticement of the gang, and he tells his son, right, and us, that our response to temptation isn't just about the instance before us. It is a choice of paths. Going on in verse 15 and 16, he says, my son, the parents say, my son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths, for their feet rush into evil, and they are swift to shed blood. Again, guys, we know this. I mean, the wisdom here is just manifest. Small lies lead to big lies. One compromise leads to another compromise. One gossip leads to another when we violate God's nature within us, our conscience, our integrity, our heart, it takes a hit. And you know, no one ever woke up one day and thought, you know, I think I'm gonna to start to flirt with my coworker. So then after a while, I can have an affair, lie to my family, and ultimately destroy my life. Right, no, nobody thinks that. But that is where it leads. That is where the path is headed the minute we step onto it. I mean, the Apostle Paul summed up this truth when he declared in Romans 6, 23, or at the first half of Romans 6, 23. Remember what that says? For the wages of sin is what? Is death. And friends, hear me. Too often when we hear that verse, right? Christian culture hears this and primarily thinks of death as God's anger and punishment against sin in terms of judgment and hell. But the emphasis here in Proverbs, and for that matter, throughout, throughout all of Scripture, right, isn't just some existential punishment in the next life, but the destruction and death that sin causes now. That's the natural consequence of human action when we turn our backs upon God and elevate ourselves above other people. You see, God hates sin not just because it offends Him, not just because it even harms those around us, although that's much more the issue. It offends God because it hurts people, but because it's also deadly to us. It's deadly to ourselves. And this is how the father ends, the father and the mother end this warning. And they say, how useless to spread a net where every bird can see it. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. For such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. This image of spreading a net is the idea of a person, you know, going out in the wide open area and trying to catch a bird by throwing a net on them. Right? The birds just see it and fly away. It's an exercise in self-deception. Likewise, 
those who lie in wait for the blood of another, right? When we take advantage of other people to the benefit of ourselves, however subtle that may be, the, the image here is that we're damaging ourselves, right? Those who lie in wait for the blood, blood of another lie in wait for their own blood. When we seek to take advantage of others, we only ambush ourselves. In this closing point, the inevitable path of self-gratification at, at the expense of another is that it destroys our own lives. You know, the saying is true. If you see a person who hates others, you see a person who hates themselves. Now, friends, again, it's important for us not to get lost in the strong and the explicit language here. Because this principle is true for us all, and it can be subtle. In our own lives, how are we tempted to step into the path of self-gratification, of the easy answer, the easy path, at the expense of another person? And if we can be honest and see this, then we're able to ask ourselves, and how is this harming me? How are these thoughts and actions taking from the very life that I am seeking to fulfill. So friends, this is the opening warning of the Proverbs. And it's heavy duty. I mean, this is, this is significant. It's difficult to consider. But church, hear me. This leads us now to the good news, to the lens of Jesus, because as common as these temptations are in all of life, now as it was Right, you know, 4,000 years ago when David and, and Solomon, well, Solomon, beginning with Solomon, not David, sorry about that, when he began to write down these Proverbs, right? The human condition really hasn't changed that much. But even that being the case, now in Christ, we are no longer fated to succumbing to them. You see, rather than living in fear of the temptation of sin, in Christ, we have been invited to live in the peace and confidence of the new way of the Spirit, of a new creation heart that follows the ways of God because this is the desire of who we now are, not just because it's the teaching of the law. Paul said it this way in Romans 6. He said, Believe that you are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, right? That you could, you could just take that almost out of the Proverbs there. And he goes on, don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. What I just said, now moving on. But rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer, right, willingly, from a place of love, offer every part of yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. And then Romans 6.14 says this, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, you are under grace. Wow. Friends, let's look at this again, now through the lens of Jesus. Friends, first, rather than being enticed by the lust for easy gain, in Christ we have the power of overcoming temptation by the love of what is good. See, rather than our moral decisions being about what we should do or must do, even though to do this would be right and wise, 
In Christ, we have entered the better hope of our motivation being the love of God, the love of good, rather than the requirement of rules. And I, I just love this passage. I've shared it many times, but it's Hebrews 7, verses 18 and 19, where the writer says, the former regulation, right, the law, the moral law of the Old Testament is set aside because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect. But now, and now, a better hope is introduced, which is Christ, God's grace, by which we draw near to God. Now, I've given the illustration several times in the past. Um, when, when I was a little kid growing up in Texas, you know, us, us boys were out on the playground. Maybe some girls were there with us. I think it was just the boys, but we played marbles, right? And we played for keeps, which was against the rules, right? Because it, why? It was gambling. <laughs> and if we, were, if we were caught playing marbles for keeps, we'd be in a heap of trouble. But we did it anyway. Yeah, you could not tell us not to play marbles and not to play marbles with keeps. That's, that was that like consumed us. I'm talking like third, fourth grade years, little kids out on the playground. And at that time, I may have thought, you'll never be able to convince me not to play marbles until I discovered basketball. I got tall enough that I could actually hit the rim. And all of us guys together, marbles is out the window. And life was about basketball. And again, we would think, you're never going to get me to stop playing basketball. I'll get home from school. This is all I'm going to do. And no one's ever going to tell me anything different until we discovered girls. <laughs> and then basketball was gone. Well, friends, the point is, as we grow, our behavior changes, truly changes, when we fall in love with something greater, when we fall in love with a greater good. Augustine put it this way. Love God and do as you please. <laughs> because when our foundation is loving God, we will express this love by how we love other people. And in that place, right, that motivation of heart, rather than being tempted to devalue people, we will see people through the eyes of Jesus. Oh, my friends, this is such a powerful thought. And it's throughout the New Testament. But, but just consider the famous passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, right? This is the new creation. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. This is that passage with a little bit of the context around it. So as I read this, I want you to think about what is the expression of this truth about what Jesus did. So I'm starting in verse 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 15. And Paul writes, and so Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Okay, all right, guys, don't miss this. What did Paul just say? He said, we no longer live for ourselves, we live for Christ. Okay, so what does living for Christ look like? And then the very next thing Paul says is this. So from now on, we regard no one, right, no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. In other words, my friends, when we are living for Christ, knowing what he did, we think of communion and what we celebrate and then say, this is the basis of how we live. What is the great way that that is expressed? It changes how we see people. 
It changes how we relate to people. It changes how we tend to value ourselves greater than other people and how we make decisions and how we speak and how we express ourselves. You know, we used to think, Paul says, we used to think of Christ as just some mere human, but now we know that he is God. And we used to think of people as lacking value, as less important than ourselves. But now we see people as Christ sees people, as creations of God, loved by God, people for whom Christ died. Going on in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. It is here. The old is gone, and the new is here. Okay, again, so what? What does this new creation life look like? Where does it lead? Again, the very next thing Paul says, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself. Think of how broad that is, not counting people's sins against them. You see, my friends, Jesus didn't see people in terms of their sin. He saw them as people valuable enough to die for their sin. So how do we see people? How do we define people? What perspective motivates how we speak, how we speak about, and how we engage with people? And the passage ends, Paul says, and so he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We are bearing the character and the nature of God to the people in the world around us, right? as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that there. But the great antidote to the temptation of devaluing other people is seeing people as Jesus sees them. And next we see the antidote to the temptation, right? Just the, one, of the, the, one of the great antidotes to temptation in general, which is the deep blessing of holiness. Now, friends, we'll talk about this more in the coming months. But put simply, the deep blessing of holiness is the peace that comes from a clear conscience before God and a clear conscience before others. The peace that comes when our identity, our contentment, the wellness of our soul isn't contingent on our performance, but on who we are in Christ. The freeing knowledge that in Christ we are accepted, loved, and precious to God. And in that place of peace, from that foundation of peace, rather than being tempted into the path of folly and sin, we are invited to walk in the path of faith. You know, we often think, right, and we hear this taught a lot, that the choice um, here, that the choice is the path of sin, uh, excuse me, that the choice before us is choosing the path of sin against God, or the path of obedience to God. But this really is highly simplistic and really misses the point because the opposite of sin isn't just obedience. The opposite of sin is faith. It's trust in God 
dependence upon God rather than trust and dependence upon ourselves. I mean, think with me again. The path of sin, foolishness, right? the path of self, it requires no faith. That's one reason it's so seductive. It offers the delusion that we are the ones in control. But at the same time, we can choose to live morally for a variety of reasons, at least for a period of time, apart from faith. Right? We can choose to make certain kind of choices, to live a certain kind of way, out of our own resources, still thinking that we are in control. Right? And this is actually one way that the Proverbs are sometimes distorted. We, you know, we, we think, if I just live this way, then God is bound to bless me. And it's where our motivation isn't knowing God and being drawn to God and trusting God. Our motivation is gratifying self. So I'm going to manipulate God into making my life good by living in a certain way. And that is not what this is talking about. But friends, to trust God, to live in a dependent faith in God, this is the gift of always looking up to God when we are living in love-based obedience and when we fail when we are frustrated, when we give way to fear, when we experience brokenness, or when we just feel like giving up. Because in some small way, we are often like the woman accused of adultery, sitting there in the dirt of our own failure, accused by the voices of our own guilt. And then we look up in faith to the face of Jesus, who is right there, extending, he, extending his hand that we have held before. And we hear him say to us again, the words we first heard when we believed, I don't condemn you. Come now, walk again with me, and I will lead you back into freedom from your sin. I will lead you into the way of wisdom. And my friends, we are able to walk the path of faith because by the amazing grace of God, we have received in Christ the gift of life. All of Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God is eternal life, and I'll add here parenthetically, and the eternal kind of life right now, in the midst of life as it really is, given freely to us in conjunction with our faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, may that be said of us when we face the temptation of the gang, the temptation to be enticed, the temptation to devalue, the temptation of shortcuts and easy gain at the expense of another. Rather than just looking at foolishness and wisdom, as important as that is, and just looking at what the rules say, may we look to Jesus. May we see people through the eyes of Christ. And may we let the love of God be the motivation and the transforming force by which we live. Friends, thank you for tracking with me today. I love you. And we'll be back here again next week.